Food is many things. It can be nutritious fuel for your body and brain, a delicious treat for your taste buds, or even the cause of brain fog and inflammation. Learn more on this episode of The Brain Podcast. I am Dr. Shabnam Das Kaur. I'm a functional medicine doctor and a certified dining habits coach. I teach people how to improve their focus, get rid of brain fog, and reduce their risk of dementia. And I'm Andrea Spiros. I'm a professional speaker and Tiny Habits certified coach, and I work with organizations to harness the power of high-powered habits to increase engagement, resilience, and well-being. So today we're talking about food overall, very high level. We'll have some deeper dives into a lot of the topics around food. But today, let's start out with the basics of what's the purpose of food? How does it cause uh, inflammation or relate to inflammation? And how can it help you maintain healthy blood glucose levels and support optimal blood pressure? And as you recall, inflammation, low levels of inflammation, maintaining healthy blood glucose levels and optimal blood pressure are the three foundations of brain health. So Shabnam, let's talk about the purpose of food to start with. Yes. So obviously, one of the first things we think about food is it's going to provide our cells with adequate fuel. So here, because we're talking about brain, and uh, Andrea, you mentioned the foundations of brain health. So food impacts all those three areas. It impacts blood glucose levels, it impacts blood pressure levels, it impacts inflammation levels. One of the most important thing about fueling is now our brain, if you look at it in terms of body weight, it's about two to three percent of our body weight, but it uses up about 20 percent of all the you know energy requirement from, that the body has. So the brain and the immune system are two of the big energy hogs. So obviously the question is how, you know, food gets so complicated, uh, Andrea, and there's so much of emotion attached to food. For sure. And, <laughs> and you know, all this inf- misinformation and, you know, food sometimes becomes a religion. So it's sometimes hard to keep your, your you know, I would say your sanity. <laughs> but as a, as a clinician, it's sometimes hard for me to maintain my, you know, dispassionate, this thing of looking at data. So what right. how I look at food is, number one, is it providing the brain with the right kind of fuel? Exactly. And number two, again, inflammation and blood glucose are the two other ones. So when we talk about uh, brain fueling, so multiple studies have shown that people who have uh, Alzheimer's disease or even what is called mild cognitive impairment, MCI, so that is a large number of people with MCI will progress to Alzheimer's down the line. Then women in the menopausal transition, women with PCOS, and also in certain mental health conditions, they have basically a problem of you know utilizing the right fuel in the brain. So in medical terms, it is brain glucose hypometabolism. So to keep it in, in a simple, this thing is it's essentially diabetes of the brain, but it's it's a little different. It's not um, exactly, you know, it's a little, sometimes a little hard to uh, explain it properly. So, so basically, basically in, in those situations, the brain isn't using the fuel of food in the same way that it might in a healthy brain. 
Absolutely. Andrea, like I always say, your you know middle name is Clarity. Thank you. <laughs> so, so if you have these conditions, it might not be, it, it, there's a little bit different solution for yeah. you. In but for everybody else, for everybody else, for, since we're talking high level today, for everybody else, we'll talk a, a little bit differently. And then if you have some of those, you'll understand that the way what food, how your brain uses food is different than the way uh, other brains use food. Yeah. And basically what happens is the brain loses its ability to use glucose as a fuel, but you know, it still retains its ability to use other things like ketones. And we're going to talk about all that in details later on. So it's not like, you know, our brains are so fantastic. It's not like we don't have an alternative fuel. <laughs> so it, we do have no, Exactly, exactly. And so what you're saying is, in, in maybe more typical brains, they use glucose in some of these other brains that are affected by those, those uh, syndromes that you mentioned, they might use ketones or another source of fuel. And we'll discuss all those when we go in a, into a deeper dives. Yeah. So next important thing is, uh, one is now where food gets a little more complex is sometimes, Andrea, you know, it's like, it's so easy to know what is the right thing to eat, but then why don't we eat what we are supposed to eat? <laughs> That's why people make millions of dollars in the food and diet industry. I know. So that that is where it gets more complicated. So I'm sure all you know, all our listeners, you've read or you've heard about you know the mind diet or the you know the dash diet or the low carb diet or the ketogenic diet or the paleo diet. The problem is. All whole lot of you know, any diet which includes real food and does not include a lot of processed sugar and processed carbohydrates and packaged food will improve health, whether it is brain health or heart health or anything. The problem is in maintaining those changes. And that is the reason Andrea and I never talk about going on a diet because you don't eat a diet every day. <laughs> No. And most people feel they feel very restricted. And when we talk about diet, we are talking about the foods you choose to eat. Right. So we'll talk about if we say healthy diet, it just means healthy, whatever, fill in the blank of what foods you choose to eat. And talk about this, too, where you know, we all hear like blueberries are good for the brain. So now I'm going to have a handful of blueberries every day or um, acai bowls are the new trend. They're supposed to make me healthier. So now I'm going to do that. How do people choose around those things? <laughs> That's a great question. So um, blueberries, yes, lots of studies showing one cup of, or I think it was half a cup of blueberries. If you eat it every day, some studies have been done using supplements the question is, how in, in what context? So let us say you exchange your, you know, sweet, sugar sweetened desert every day for blueberry and cream, maybe, or blueberry and yogurt, depending on whether you can tolerate dairy or not. That is, of course, a much better food choice. But if you think that, you know, as our friend Jennifer, who's a fellow Tiny Habits coach and the assistant director of the Tiny Habits Academy, has this lovely example. She says, if you think blueberries are going to help you when you eat blueberries sitting in front of the you know, TV 
and uh, doing Sudoku puzzles, then no, blueberries are not going to be helpful. <laughs> yeah, you're not suddenly you're not suddenly going to have all the answers to the puzzle you're doing just by eating the blueberries. Yeah. So it's everything is in context. So if you love blue, then the other thing that comes, you know, which I have become more aware of, Andrea, these days. What if you don't like blueberries? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think that that some people do believe that they should eat things that they don't want to eat simply because it's quote unquote good for them, and that is one reason why people don't do things long term. Because as behavior specialists, as we are in, in being tiny habit certified coaches, we understand that it's very hard to get yourself to do something long term if you don't really want to do it. And wouldn't you agree, Shabnam? There are many ways that people could improve their brain equal to or better than eating blueberries. And they would do it long-term if it was something that they actually like to do. Yeah. And another great example is, you know, uh, fish. So fish, fatty fish, like salmon, are supposed to contain uh, omega-3 fatty acids. And we will talk about omega-3 in detail. But uh, you, I'm sure you've read this as well as I have, that you must eat fish for your brain. But the fact is, you know, in Canada, we are told that you need to eat two helpings of fish a week. Now, two helpings of fatty fish a week are not going to give me the omega-3 levels I need. Right. And what if I don't like fish? I love fish. But, you know, the fact is, it's it's not so simple when it comes to food versus, you know, swallowing a pill. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so I think the overarching things that we are telling you in the the intro to this is that you want to pick things that you can get yourself to do. You want to, if you have any things that aren't working for you, or you know you have a high sugar, high processed diet, you want to just swap those for some things that are more whole foods based that you like to eat, that you feel are good substitutes and that you don't feel denied by eating. And that you think you can do long-term because those are the things that are going to stick. And then those are also the things that are going to help you experience yourself as someone who can actually change their diet, their patterns, their habitual patterns of eating. And once you have that success of seeing yourself do the thing long-term that you've committed or even much more easily than you think, you will then be able to build on that foundation of success. So many people make these drastic changes. I live in Los Angeles, so it's the home of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, stars are always going on crash diets where they're eating, I don't know, honey, lemon water, and cayenne powder for three days so that they can fit into their red carpet dresses. But no one maintains that and that's not healthy. So when you get to experience yourself making these small long-term changes, but then you start to identify as someone who can make change and who can eat more healthily. Uh, so let's talk about how food affects the three foundations of brain health. And let's talk about inflammation first. So inflammation, as we've uh, talked about this before, is sort of like a, it's an immune system response, which is sort of like a smoldering fire that keeps on happening in the background, whereas very often you will not have, you may not have any symptoms. Sometimes it is, it could be mood issues, it could be brain fog, but very often it's not like brain fog means inflammation, but we can test, do certain blood tests to tell us about that. But basically food is one of the biggest sources of inflammation. 
and what happens is and there is actually there is a lot of good there are a lot of good reasons why you know food can uh, food needs to trigger inflammation because back in our hunter gatherer days you know we didn't have uh, even before that when we didn't cook food enough so a lot of these you know harmful stuff was in food so our bodies needed to protect us from those things so just after eating food the body does mount an inflammatory response now unfortunately given the type of food we eat and the frequency with which we eat the inflammatory response has kind of gone haywire and there is no easy way like most people will not feel like just now i eat something sugary next moment i'm like dying or something it doesn't quite happen that right there's not a there's not a big response by your body going like inflammation you know there's no sign saying inflammation 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 but it still yeah. may be happening and what i hear you saying is there's some natural inflammatory response, but it subsides very quickly. And when we talk about inflammation, we're talking about the smoldering fire, as you said, where it is long-term, well over time, your body is in a constant state of some form of inflammation that can impact uh, and support other chronic issues in happening in your body. Yeah, so this the inflammation part of it is there's something called uh, food sensitivity versus food allergy. So food allergy is all the peanut allergy and things like that, which uh, makes you rush to the ER. It's not that. That is allergy. Food sensitivity is more like, you know, you eat something and then maybe one day later you realize you have a headache or you have a rash and it doesn't even relate to the gut. So in all functional medicine, doctors use what is called an elimination diet. And some of the commonest, uh, you know, problem food are, you know, gluten, dairy, grains, processed food, of course. So it's different for each person. And sometimes testing it also doesn't really tell us. So the elimination diet is irksome to do, but then that can probably give you better, uh, you know, information. Exactly. We'll talk in details later because that's very important. Exactly. And I will share that this is my household. My son has a dairy intolerance, but he has denied it uh, mm -hmm. on, even though we can see when he has uh, uh, some form of dairy like ice cream or milk that he's got intestinal distress. Mm -hmm. And recently he said to me, you know, I realize I have an issue with dairy. And if I keep eating dairy, ultimately, I know it's going to have an impact on my health. And we have, his dad had Crohn's disease, which oh. is an intestinal issue. And he said, I don't, I think I need to stop eating dairy because I don't want to put that stress on my body and turn on that gene and then get Crohn's disease. So uh, wow. that, that this is kind of what we're talking about sharing with you, the listener, is that's the type of thinking that is supportive. Now, we're not also saying, you know, you must give up dairy, cold turkey, or you can never have dairy again, you're going to take steps. And of course, with support to whatever works for, you know, works for you and take out dairy, put in gluten, take out dairy, put in whatever it is causing inflammation for you, or that you're noticing, right, you'll take supportive steps that you can do and that you can maintain long term. But the the inflammation, uh, reducing inflammation is can be very supportive and also help with, uh, you know, law, eliminating or reducing the effects of chronic diseases. 
Yeah, that was, uh, and another important thing, uh, Andrea, you pointed out is you probably suspected that he had a problem with dairy, but if you kept on telling him, I don't think it would have changed his behavior until he decided that he wanted to change, right? Exactly. So we would discuss the impacts when he would have something and then he would have distress. And I would ask, or he might have said, you know, oh, I had a milkshake. And uh, I might just say, oh, are you okay? Did you, you said you had a milkshake. Do you think that could be part of it? But I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't argue for it. And he would go back and forth on it, but he came around to it himself. I didn't tell him any of that. And the important thing is when he chooses, it's going to stick. He, We already don't uh, have milk in our household because none of us can tolerate very well, but we can tolerate it in cooked foods like muffins and pancakes or things like that. And so he's identifying for himself and that's the important thing. So if you're listening to, you need to identify for yourself and then identify the actions. And of course, you know, you can get support of a, of a license, your healthcare professional, or even tiny habits certified coaches to help you like us to help you make the changes you need. Let's talk about maintaining healthy blood glucose levels um, next, because that's really important to, you know, clarity and mood and things like that. Actually, blood glucose levels are one of the most important things for brain health and mood. And the interesting thing is we have a lot of studies now to tell us that even if you don't have diabetes, so people with diabetes are at a higher risk for dementia, mood disorders, the whole lot of them. But even if you do not have diabetes, so diabetes is basically you've crossed a certain threshold of your blood glucose levels or blood sugar levels, and you are told that, okay, you have diabetes. So nowadays, of course, it's, it's, it, it might hopefully change. But your, your doctor tells you, oh, you need to be on a medication called metformin, you know, and just start it. But what about those who are trending up? So even if you do not have a diagnosis of diabetes, if you are, let us say, just two or three points away from it, does it mean that everything is fine? No. That is what we are finding out. And sometimes it's also important to know, uh, you know, how you're measuring your blood glucose levels. And we will do a deeper dive into that. For many people, a hemoglobin A1c, which essentially measures the average of the last three months of blood glucose, may not be the ideal one, particularly if you have iron deficiency, B12 deficiency, certain ethnicities like South Asians, it doesn't work quite well. So we will do a deep dive on what are the best measures. If I had my way, I would put a continuous glucose monitor on everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way. <laughs> yeah, because people get such shocks. To, I tell you, Andrea, you know, many a time I'm asked, I have blood, I have diabetes. Should I eat, you know, whatever magic food you want to name? Right. I tell them I have no way of knowing because each person responds differently to a certain food. So I may be fine with, you know, and I did check mine and I was fine with like my blood glucose levels didn't go up with ice cream. Of course, I did. But with some of the Indian flatbreads, it's like it went into the diabetes range and I don't have diabetes. So right. it's, it's very difficult to give a generic, you know, recommendation. Don't eat this, eat that. And you need to figure out which are the least troublesome food for you. And 
so basically if you look again this is a broad this thing uh, carbohydrates that is starchy food potatoes bread pasta pizza all those things they are they raise blood glucose levels the highest next comes protein and fat so protein does not raise your blood glucose levels or insulin levels as much and good fat not the trans fats and the fat in processed food but those keep your blood glucose levels uniform so one of the goals is of course to get your blood glucose levels to the optimal range which does not mean it has to be just below the diabetes range it is very likely much lower next is to maintain it in that level over periods of time so it's it should not go high and then fall down and then what we call the hangry monster you know eat a lot of oh yeah I, I i i exactly i'm i'm raising my hand for that one uh at times where i can feel myself get crabby and then i think oh when was the last time i ate i ate um yeah so basically what you're saying is you really in a perfect world if we could wave a magic wand we get everyone eating the foods that were right for them that would maintain an optimal, which is probably lower than, than what uh, you may think, blood glucose level over sustained over time. So you're not high highs, low lows, you know, fluctuating throughout the, the day. And that's going to actually help fuel your brain in a better way so that you can think clearly and have a better mood and even reduce your risk of brain-related diseases? Yes. And the other important thing is, we will again talk about it in details. If blood glucose levels fluctuate wildly, sometimes it affects your mood very badly. I mean, people have experienced anxiety and panic attacks because their blood glucose levels have not remained steady. They just go up and go down. So that is again something called relative hypoglycemia, about which we will talk about in on another. Go on a deeper dive on those things. Yeah. So blood awesome. glucose levels. Another thing, Andrea, I suggest because you know how food is such an emotional thing. So I have a lot yes. of course in South Asians, and in India, you know, eating roti, the flatbread. Mm, it's yes. like, oh, if I don't eat this, I'm like doomed. This is my ancestral food, or it could be rice, depending on which part of India they're from. So I have, I tell them, okay, you are not going to give up that. And I understand because like, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat this. Like So much. Eat. Yeah, we can only not eat so much before yeah. we feel very, very denied. And that's not good for your mental state of being. And it won't support long-term change. No. So find out which is the food that raises your blood glucose the least. And this is something you can do using one of those glucometers, so the finger stick, or you can use a continuous blood glucose monitor, which is you wear a sensor for, depends on which sensor. Usually it's about two weeks and you can, you don't have to keep, you know, doing a finger stick all the time. And Andrea, believe it or not, many of my patients get, you know, they get big shocks. They said, oh, I thought this was very good for me. And it would usually be something like a processed cereal or. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on it, you know. <laughs> right, right. Where where it's it's labeled healthy, but it, yeah. it's not, right. So it's a great feedback mechanism to show what what is happening in your body with certain foods so that you really understand what's really healthy for your blood glucose and what's not. Let's talk about optimal blood pressure as our final um, 
bit today. So we've we, the three foundations of brain health are low levels of inflammation, maintaining healthy blood glucose levels, and then finally supporting optimal blood pressure. And let's talk about food and optimal uh, blood pressure. So blood pressure, if you ever read anything on the internet, the first thing you'll find is you're supposed to reduce your sodium intake. Now, yes, uh, high sodium intake is harmful for many different things, but uh, interestingly, not everyone may be sodium sensitive. So sodium gets a lot of, you know, prime time, so to say. Yeah. But, uh, and there are ways to find out if you're sodium sensitive or not. One is the long detailed process, which most of my patients never did, was to <laughs> do a review of their what they eat regularly and find out if there are high salt food like all processed food and any packaged food actually has more salt so you can check the sodium levels on the nutrition label and then you know stop them for two weeks and check your blood pressure before and after so andrea even i have not done that <laughs> neither have my patients well because we're human you're human yeah right? but uh, recently we have some interesting data where if you check your continuous blood pressure mon do a continuous blood pressure monitor you could be doing it for one day or nowadays some devices are there which you can check for you know you can it's a wearable right so if the nighttime blood pressure is high and again these studies have to be seen in different populations but i was excited to know that there is some way we can probably find out you know not yeah exactly you're very data driven and so it's it's <laughs> that's one of the the best things that it can really support what people are doing with what is happening and give them some feedback. Yeah. So if nighttime blood pressure goes up and pulse rate goes up beyond 70 in this particular study, it is possible that you're sodium sensitive. So obviously in such cases, if you find that in your, you know, given your reports, you can reduce your sodium intake and see what happens, you know, after two to three weeks. And again, we don't know how long it will take. So sodium is a big one, but like I said, not everyone is sodium sensitive. The next big one, which is missed very often, is potassium. So when it comes to food, the commonest thing we'll always hear is the DASH diet. So this was the dietary approaches to stop hypertension. So that's DASH, D-A-S-H, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. So DASH diet obviously had real food. It had a lot of fruit and vegetables and low-fat dairy. And I, if I remember correctly, the first study was done where people were actually given the food. So they didn't have to cook anything. This was almost like receiving a, you know, a hamper of food every day. Right. Nice. Sign so, me up. Yeah. So Andrea, how, what do you think would be the compliance on a program like that? Very high. Right? Very high. Yeah. I'd comply with that. Yeah. So obviously they saw great results, but then even a lower carbohydrate diet, and again, there are many different versions. We'll talk about them. A lower carbohydrate diet was also found to reduce blood pressure. Now we know that with weight loss, and it doesn't even have to be some dramatic weight loss, even five to 10% of body weight loss can reduce your blood pressure levels. So when they compared a whole bunch of different diets, you know, all the, the numerous named ones like Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig's and this and that and all, what they found is with a low-carb diet, number one is the weight loss was persistent and blood pressure uh, reduction was great. And it wasn't only related to the weight loss. So there were other things happening 
And this in the medical world, because everyone will say, oh, if you lose weight, of course your blood pressure is going to come down. Yeah, of course it is going to come down, but are we able to maintain that weight loss? Exactly, yeah. So try out different things and find food that you're going to eat over the long term versus, you know, some magic diet you do for a short term and then your blood pressure comes down and then you decide, okay, I don't need to be on the diet anymore. So potassium from food is, again, very important. And the other thing is, so recently I did a review of my food and I knew the importance of about the importance of potassium. But I realized I wasn't eating high potassium food at all because many of them are high in sugar. So bananas, then potato skins, prunes, all the stuff. I mean, I would love to have potatoes. But I Delicious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So and that can be and that can be a balancing act. Right. That the yeah. high potassium yeah. foods are also high in sugar and they can affect. And, and so what do we do about things like that? So, again, it's like, you know, some of my patients will say, no, doctor, I'm going to figure out how much how much potassium I get every day. And I want to do it the dietary way versus some will say, like I decided I'm going to try a supplement of potassium and not rely on food that I'm not I'm not going to eat them. How will I get them? Right. If you don't I mean, if you don't like bananas, if you don't like, you know, potatoes, if you don't like those things, then you're not likely getting the potassium you need. And so a supplement might be a good form of potassium for you. Again, we're talking about how to maintain long-term change and optimal blood pressure, blood glucose, and inflammation. And we want you to do things that you can do in the long-term that actually have impact, not something you're going to do for a little bit and then stop and then go on a ro roller coaster. That never feels good to do to anyone. They don't, people tend to um, then feel, end up feeling bad about themselves. And Really, you change best by feeling good. Yeah. And with potassium, there's one more thing you can do, which is easy, is replace your high sodium salt with a low sodium salt. These are easily available anywhere. So part of that sodium is replaced by potassium and lots of studies to support that. And I have started using that and I don't think there's a big difference in the, in the taste. You know, of course, these are not... These are not rock salts and all those natural salts. I don't think there's any rock salt which has more potassium than sodium. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so if you're someone who now this is not this is not to say what that if you're low in potassium, you should buy these alternative salts and start salting everything. It's it's more <laughs> like an easier way to increase to to do a swap to reduce your sodium and with and replace it with something that's a little healthier than potassium. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Well, today we covered a high level uh, talk about food. So food is delicious. Food has a lot of emotional content for people. There's a lot of people's heritage in it. There's a lot of people's favorite food. We associate food with special times in our lives. And we're not here to tell you to give up those favorite things. We want to inform you about what food is doing as fuel for your brain and body. We want you to know uh, what, how it can cause inflammation, how it can support healthy blood glucose levels over time and support your optimal blood pressure so that your three foundations of brain health are supported and you can live a happier, healthier life. We will do a deep dive into all those three foundations and food, many, many different parts of food in, in other episodes. So keep an eye out for those. Thank you for listening. 
please like, uh, share, rate us, and subscribe. You can also find all these podcasts at drcarmd.com slash podcast. That's Dr. D-R-K-A-R-M-D.com slash podcast. Cheers, everyone. Thank you.